Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hi, this is Rob Dalrymple, and I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Today's podcast is from an introductory course on how to interpret the Bible that I presented in 2012. If you'd like the lecture notes to follow along with this presentation, I encourage you to log into my website, determinedtruth.wordpress.com. Click on the link on the left side of the page titled Alphabetical Listing of All Classes. And then find the class, Biblical Interpretation. That'll take you to the page with all the audio recordings as well as a, a substantial set of notes to help guide you through this course. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe and let others know as well. Thanks for tuning in, and here's our study on how to interpret the Bible. Hello, we thank you now for the holidays and the ability to come through them now and, and, and uh, just begin this new year off with uh, studying and learning and opening up your word and being challenged on how to interpret Scripture and how to do so faithfully. Uh, we, we strongly believe in uh, the prominence of the Bible and the significance and importance of the Bible in the life of the believer, in the life of the church, uh, for the formation of our spiritual lives and for all of these things. And yet we also recognize that uh, the Bible is not always easy to interpret and easy to understand. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to know how to read it and understand it and interpret it, how to be good stewards of that and how to be faithful in that responsibility. And uh, may you be glorified as we do so. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going st- to be on page 9 on the law, but before we do that, we're going to turn to Deuteronomy 21. Uh, we've been using Luke 15, 16, 17 for a few weeks to illustrate some principles on biblical interpretation. But as one biblical scholar says, we're going to look at the grab the hot-looking hot woman war text passage. Deuteronomy 21, grab the hot-looking woman war text passage. And pick it up there. Deuteronomy 21, and, and this will help, help us as we get into the context of war, uh, not of war, of law. Uh, also, so Deuteronomy 21, start in verse 10. Am I on? Yeah, I am. There you go. Deuteronomy 21, verse 10. And it says, When you go out to battle against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you, and you have t- take them as away captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you have a desire for her, and would take her as, um, uh, and have a desire for her, and would take her as a wife for yourself. Then you shall bring, him, bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall also remove the clothes of her captivity and shall remain in your house and mourn for her, her father and mother a full month. And after that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. And it, and it shall be, if you are not pleased with her, then you shall let her go wherever she wishes. But you shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not mistreat her because you have humbled her. And how many of you have heard a sermon on this passage? Yeah, very good. <laughs> Bible study fellowship, right? Friday night, Bible study at my house, this will be our passage. All right, right. We're going to look at a couple passages uh, uh, to start ourselves off tonight. And when we look at these passages, there's a measure of troublesomeness to them, is, is there not? Right? Measure of discomfort. You don't like the fact that that's in your Bible, Right? Would you feel uncomfortable if a non-Christian came up to you and said, hey, you guys believe in a God who does this? Right? I got two more that will be worse than this. 
you know, it's in there. And, and the question is, well, what do we do with this? Does anybody have any suggestion on, on how, not what the answer might be, but what do we need to know to maybe help us discern how to find an answer to this question, to, the, to this passage? It's problematic. I need another culture. Circumstances. Right. Circumstances war, though. Capture in a war. You're on to something, though. Actually, yes. Okay. I think you're actually on to something. I think you are. Um, I won't repeat it for the tape. because. Right, but go ahead. Yes. Very good. All right. He said that might have been the cultural thing to do, but it probably wasn't as, as cultural to do it as gently as the biblical text actually commands. I had some young adult college students, something like that there, uh, a little bit above, uh, all of the above, uh, come to me a couple years ago and say, you know, they were in a class, I think at Cal State Herod, uh, one of my alma mater, so I can speak about it derogatorily. The professor was talking about, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the putting down of women, you know. Uh, she prays or prophesies just to have her head covered, which is tonight's topic in First Corinthians 11, right? You know, and, uh, and, the, and if you look at the New Testament, and what it says about women, or even the, and we'll look at a slavery passage here in a minute in the Old Testament, your immediate thought is, that's horrible. Right? But, are we comparing it horrible by our standards, or by the ancient standards? That's right. So you remember last week, or three weeks ago, whatever, before the holidays, when we talked about uh, historical context. Understanding the, the genre of history and historical books. Uh, what I mentioned to you was, uh, very briefly, and now we'll, we'll look at this in more detail, is that when you compare the history of the Old Testament, you have to compare it to in, uh, in accordance with what's called the ancient Near East, A-A-N-E. Right. What was it like in the ancient Near East? Okay. Uh, and that's important, by the way, if you, if you want to read the book of Genesis. Right. Because when Moses wrote a creation account, what did he do? He wrote it like they all knew creation accounts to look like. So if we study ancient creation accounts, we'll get an idea what Moses is saying. Right? It fits that genre of ancient creation accounts. All right. uh, when you read the law, you have to see what the law code of Hammurabi might be, or what the ancient law codes were like, and then compare the biblical law code to it. All right. When you look at the New Testament, you're trying to compare the historical context to the, what's called the Greco-Roman, right, GR, the Greco-Roman cultural context. So, for example, when, when you know Paul tells women to be silent in the church, or or she can't pray or prophesy unless she has her head covered. Uh, the, the reality is, the New Testament, in light of the Greco-Roman culture, was incredibly liberating for women. What we look as putting women down and not giving them right, you know, rights of passage and, and any roles and responsibilities in the church, the New Testament actually went in the opposite direction from their culture. After all, Paul said she can pray and prophesy, which is almost unheard of. She just has to have her head covered. And all of a sudden you realize, oh... This, this is actually quite liberating compared to the ancient culture. All right, so here you go. In ancient warfare, let's put it this way. The treatment of women in a conquered, of, a, of a conquered peoples was so horrible that most men killed their wives before they got conquered. Words, if they knew their city was going down, they would just kill their wife. Because if the wife survived, it's not going to be good for her. Right? Rape, all these times, you know, bodily mutilations, they'd cut off their breasts. I mean, 
and I won't go any further because the list is so gruesome, it's probably not worthy to even have under discussion. All of a sudden now, when the Israelites conquer a civilization, and you want to take her in for a wife, well, here's the deal. You better treat her with some civility here. Okay. First off, you can't have any sex or any marriage for one month. Take her in your house. You have to have a month go by. Let her grieve her father, her mother, her, her family. She's a conquered person, right? That means the men in her family are dead. Let her grieve. This is, this is unbelievable in terms of the level of civility that's going on in comparison to the ancient Near East where fair game, anything goes, do whatever you want. All right? Which often resulted in the death of these women after all. But did you guys hear what, ta- what happened in India apparently? A few weeks ago, I just heard this last night. Oh my goodness! You know the the the, the savagery uh, of of these men and this woman, and the woman ended up dying. And it's and, you know, and the, the, all the women of India are revolting and demonstrating in the streets and asking for the death sentence upon these people because they you know this this woman survived long enough to give a testimony, and it got out. Normally, the women don't give testimonies, or they're too ashamed to give testimonies, or whatever. She gave a testimony. So this is. That's nothing compared to what the ancient world would do. All right. So when you read the biblical text in light of the ancient culture, they're saying uh, what you all, and I think what Terry was saying is, is this: It's like um, uh, God understands that this is what your culture permits, and so He's saying, "Well, okay, but you got to do it this way." In other words, yeah, I think God is conceding. I, I, I don't think that this would be a biblical ethic for today. I don't think the Christians should apply this ethic, all right, uh, 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 in this in this particular way. But in light of the ancient culture and what everyone else around them was doing, this is incredibly civilized. All right, let's look at another example. All right, uh, Exodus twenty-one. Exodus twenty-one. Uh, we're going to look at two passages on slaves and slavery. This is actually a more common passage. That Past that people will go to and say, oh, you guys believe in a God who, lo- who allows this? Uh, Exodus 21. Verse 20, if a man strikes uh, his uh, male or female slave with a rod and he dies at his hand, he shall be punished. If, however, he, being the slave, survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taken, for he is his property. Shouldn't sit well with you, right? Should be a little uneasy here, because the Bible basically just said that the slave is property. Right? Compared with, a, with the human rights of, of, of other people uh, in the law code, slaves are pretty low on the totem pole, and they don't have a lot of rights. Okay? Basically, you can beat your slave as long as he's able to get up in a day or two and go back about his business, it's okay. Right? In other words, you can beat him so bad that he's bloodied and punished and can't get up for a day, or, but he's got to be able to get up after two days. Then it's okay. And if you kill him, you're going to be punished. Again. But let's compare this to the ancient Near East. All right? What do you think, how do you think slaves were treated? You know, what would be the benefit of punishing or beating a slave? If you kill a slave, by the way, you just lost value. It's property, right? You just lost an asset. Why might an ancient slave owner do that? It, by the way, even in American slave history, they did this. Why would they do it? 
It stills in fear in all the other slaves. It sends the message to everybody else. Okay? And in fact, killing slaves in the ancient Near East was, was, it was commonplace. I'm going to lose value in that slave, but I'm going to get more money, more value out of all of my other slaves. Okay? Notice here, not allowed to kill them. If you kill a slave, even if you're trying to send a message to the other slaves, you're going to be punished. So even though the passage actually affirms that the slaves are property, it also affirms that they are of value, and therefore you can't kill them because you're going to have to get punished. Okay? So it's operating within a worldview that permits slavery. And the biblical world is saying, okay, we understand the fact that the economic fabric of society is ha- that there's slavery in it, but we're going to put some restrictions on this. All right? Um, let's see. Beating and killing slaves was actually permitted. Ancient Near East, the master would often leave marks on slaves so that it would be a testimony for all the other slaves. Things like, all right, let's look, let's look at one more passage here. We'll keep this conversation going. Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23, and I'm going to look at verse 15. Start in verse 15. Deuteronomy 23, verse 15. And now you're going to get a better feel, I think, for the biblical ethic towards slavery. Deuteronomy 23, verse 15 and 16. You shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. A runaway slave. Don't hand him back over to his master. He shall live with you in your midst in the place which you shall choose in one of your own towns where it pleases him, you shall not mistreat him. Now, this is incredible. Basically, slaves in the ancient world knew if they were going to run away, go to Israel. Right? Go to Israel. Because you're safe. They won't hand you back. And they're going to give you a place. And by the way, and you know, you give him a place to live in your town where where, it's, where he's happy with it, and well, you know, where he wants to be. Uh, and don't mistreat him. All right, here we go. In the ancient Near East, um, slaves were sought for a bounty. So if a slave ran away, there would be a price. And was, you would get paid for turning him in. And of course, if you don't turn him in you yourself also could be subject to execution. Okay? So you got double uh, uh, desire or you know, reasons to turn a slave in. If he runs away and comes to you, you're going to get paid for turning him in, and if you don't turn him in, you're going to get punished also. All right? Uh, secondly, um, captured slaves were executed in brutal and torturous manner, and their entire family was slaughtered, and any accomplices were slaughtered. And of course, that's to keep slaves from running away. It's the whole idea is, if, if this slave runs away and he's given the place of refuge, then other slaves are going to run away. So we're not going to let you give him a place of refuge. And in fact, if you try to, you're killed also. And now there's no incentive for slaves to run away. But in the biblical world, slaves actually have an incentive to run away. If you can make it to a town in Israel, you're actually in good stead. Now, in all, we look at this and we go, look, I'm still not overly excited about the biblical ethic because it seems to be supporting slavery at least. Right? I mean, this one's not. This one's kind of undermining the whole, the whole industry, the whole system now. 
But again, the, the reality is, is that we're working within a worldview, in, in some ways almost moderately primitive cultures, that were barbaric and torturous in many of these types of situations, whether it's acts of war towards women or whether it's towards their slaves. And what do you see the biblical ethic doing? Arising above the culture. Operating within the culture, but rising above the culture. I know it's, here's the way to say it. If somebody wants to condemn the Bible because it says you can do this to women or you can do this to slaves, they're imposing our ethic on them instead of comparing the ethic of that culture to the culture surrounding it. And you're going to find out, guess what? They're way above the cultures. Now, granted, they're not as far along as we would like. Make sense? All right, questions, comments, thoughts? I, I think I'm tracking with you, Mark, but, but, but say it again. Okay. The Holiness Code of Leviticus 19. Yes. Okay, if Israel did that... Correct, correct. And, and actually, that's the, that's the next part of our presentation on, on, the, on understanding the law, actually. So, yeah, yeah you're, 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 you're two steps ahead of us. But, correct. Absolutely. I fully, and we're going to go there in a few minutes, so, so I'll repeat that. That's right. Uh, there's a scholar named William, I want to say William Webb. I, I think his name's William Webb. A little bit, he, he's, got, he's got two books that I would recommend. One is heavy academic, so tread lightly. Be careful about it. All right. I think I may have mentioned the title to you before, once or twice before. He's got a book on, uh, it's titled, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. And one of the things that he does, I'm only going to talk about one aspect of the book. What he, what he does is he compares the biblical text of, of slavery to the ancient Near Eastern world. And what looked like troubling passages to us, in light of the ancient culture, they're actually like, wow, it's amazing. And what Webb argues is, is that when, is that, the culture goes this way with slavery, right? Towards condoning it and approving of it and beat the slaves and kill them and do whatever you want. And the biblical text starts going this way, saying, no, no, no. All right, so we're going to tolerate slavery here, but you're going to treat them well. And if you don't treat them well, you're going to be punished. Right? Now, we would all affirm, well, they shouldn't even be allowed to beat them. And if the guy gets up after a day or two, no harm. I mean, come on. But in light of the ancient culture... That's a, a great move forward. It's a positive ethic compared to the ancient Near East. All right. Then he goes, now let's look at the New Testament ethic, where now it's uh, slaves obey your masters, but masters don't even be harsh with your slaves. Right? And you can see the New Testament saying, okay, we understand slavery exists. By the way, the Roman Empire would have crumbled if you eliminated slavery. There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. All right? It was built on slavery. All right. So, doesn't make it okay, and sure, my answer would be, get rid of it, and if it crumbles, it crumbles, and start all over again. All right. But working within this system, and the New Testament never says it's good or it's bad, but now it continues this, this ethic of saying, we're going to continue to go further to the right now, saying, now we want slave masters to uh, not even be harsh with your slaves. Which was necessary, because... You had to keep all your other slaves in line. And Paul's like, no, can't do that. And Webb argues that the trajectory of the ethic, of the biblical ethic, leads to the abolition of slavery. In other words, William Wilberforce was just carrying out the biblical trajectory by taking it the next step. Does that make sense? All right. In other words, he's working well within the vein of a biblical ethic. And by the way, William Wilberforce was justifying it in light of Scripture. 
So when people bring up these issues, the answer becomes, let's compare this to the ancient world in which it was set in and realize this is actually very progressive. Make sense? All right. Uh, Webb has another book. I've just, uh, actually, i got like 10 pages left or whatever. Um, and uh, it's called, all right, I've got it on my Kindle here. Uh, I think it's called Corporal Punishment. Corporal Punishment in the Bible. And this is very interesting because the whole book is saying, let's look at, uh, uh, he calls it the, the two smacks max rule. Uh, the two smacks max rule is um, a number of conservative evangelical Christian scholars, James Dobson, focus on the family, and he speaks well of James Dobson, not, not to speak badly about it, that basically says, um, we, uh, based on a biblical ethic, you should only spank a child two times, and they give all these, there's like seven different rules of, of you know, never spank the child in anger, always having another adult there so you can make sure you're doing it the right way, you know, and, and this ethic on how to spank children. And Webb says, well, let's compare that ethic to the biblical ethic where they say they get it from. All right? The biblical ethic says, you know, you're going to whack them and leave a mark. The biblical ethic says you can whack them until they're this old. And if he's an insolent child, you kill him. He's like, he says, so if you could, now he, Webb says, I like the way they're reading the Bible. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying they're actually not reading the Bible as consistently as they think they are. Because the Bible says 40 lashes. Where do they get two from? Now he says, what they're doing is, is they're taking the ethic of the Bible, because the culture, by the way, was 200 lashes. So when the Bible says 40, the culture said 200. Okay? And, and he, there's all kinds of examples of this in the ancient culture. So what's the Bible doing? It's taking this progressive ethic in light of its ancient culture. He says, and what they're doing is, they're taking that ethic and they're going the next step but they don't realize they're going the next step. And they're justifying their ethical line of Scripture, but Scripture says, it, Scripture takes them the other direction. And then he begins to say, I think that we should actually, this is his argument, you have to read the book yourself, uh, we should actually continue the ethic one step further, and that is no corporal punishment. And he, and he, and he discusses why. And, and uh, it, it's actually very, very, very compelling. And, and it's, it's about... Uh, well, you know, the, the young child can't understand reasoning, so we'll beat the child until they're old enough to understand reasoning. Uh, and he says, actually, the biblical ethic is the older they get, the more you beat them. Whereas the Dobson's policy is the older they get, the less you beat them. It's like, well, how do you justify that? You know, very provocative, anyway. So, all right. Uh, uh, and that book is much more readable. That, that book's more for the lay, lay person. The first chapter, too, uh, you might gloss over, but uh, moving along. All right. Uh, any questions, comments, thunder remarks? All right, let's move on. Uh, how do we interpret the law? How do we interpret the law? The word law is the Torah in Hebrew. It generally refers to the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy. They're called the Pentateuch in, in Christian lingo, by the way, right? Pentateuch meaning the five books. We put them all together under one because we believe that Moses is the author of all the books. So it's all Mosaic authorship. Though technically Genesis is not the law. Numbers is not really the law. Leviticus is more for the priests. So you're really looking at parts of Exodus, which are historical. The first 15 or so chapters, talking about the Exodus. And then, then you have the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Um, and then, actually, most of the end of Exodus is about the tabernacle. So really, it's Deuteronomy. 
right? Remember the word Deuteronomy? Anybody remember what it means? Deutero, Deutero. Two. Second. And animas is the word for law. Yes, yeah, second law. Deuteronomy means the second law. Deuteronomy is this. Exodus is the law, the Ten Commandments, and Exodus 20. Uh, that's the Ten Commandments that the Israelites got when they just escaped Egypt at the beginning of the 40 years. But then they disobeyed. So at the end of the 40 years, before they go into the Promised Land, they get the law again. And that's Deuteronomy. It's the law again. The second law. And that's why you find the Ten Commandments again all right, in uh, Deuteronomy 5. So it's the giving of the law again, and it's the giving of the law, and, and that's why I've said Deuteronomy is so important, is because that's the law that they take into the land. And when the prophets hold the people of Israel accountable, it's to Deuteronomy. It's not to Exodus, per se. Uh, well, it's not different, except, uh, it's not different. The Ten Commandments are still the Ten Commandments. We'll, we'll lay this out in just a minute. What is different is, it's more saying, okay, now, when you go into the land, this is what you do. So here are the laws, and here's how they apply to you when you go into the land. Do this, to this, to this, to this, to this, um, and things of that nature. So it's more relevant. It's just speaking to a different generation. It's kind of what it's doing. So, all right. Uh, another thing, by the way, is this. Torah is sometimes used for the whole Old Testament. Just so you have an awareness of that. Uh, Torah is sometimes used for the whole Old Testament. Um, a modern-day Jew will call it the Tanakh. Uh, T-A-N-A-K-H. Uh, and basically, those are the first two letters of each in Hebrew: Torah, Tanakh, Netuvim, the prophets, and Ketuvim, which is uh, you know the writings. So it's just the Hebrew words for the Old Testament. So they call it the Tanakh. But sometimes you might hear the word Torah, and it might be a reference to the whole Old Testament. But technically, it's the first five books. All right, Exodus 19. Exodus 19. Again, if you'll note, Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. Uh, So Exodus 19 serves as an introduction to the Ten Commandments. And uh, I'm going to start in verse 4. So this is the major introduction to the Ten Commandments. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession, among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So here, and and I mentioned this in the the sermon the last couple, couple weeks ago, but this is the essence. The law is to do what? It's to separate Israel from the nation. Now that's a very important point because you're like, why, did that, why, does, why is that a law? Uh, for example, no tattoos. You guys seen that law? No tattoos. Why? Because it's to distinguish Israel from the nations. And that's, that's one of the fundamental principles of the law, to distinguish Israel from the nations. Now, in doing so, that, and that's kind of verse 5, you'll be my own possession. I'm going to separate you from all the nations. Verse 6, the result is, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. Now, what's a priest? What's the role of a priest? It's a mediator. So a priest is someone who mediates between God and the people. If the whole nation is a nation of priests, there's God, then there's Israel. So the question becomes, who are they mediators for? Or to? And the answer is to the rest of the world. 
i.e., Israel was supposed to be a light unto the nations. The law would distinguish Israel, would separate the people of Israel, right? Let me see if I can find a good verse in the book of Deuteronomy. But it's that verse that I referenced you know, during the sermon, and that is that when Israel follows these laws, the nations will look and go, look how great a nation that is, look how great their God is. The law would serve as a testimony to the greatness of God, because when they obeyed it, God would bless them, and they'd be a light unto the nation. So, uh, Exodus 19, 4-6, kind of serves as that key requirement. Let me give you two, let me turn the page over here, page 10. All right, here you go. Uh, top of page 10, capital C. If you want to understand the law, you need to understand it in light of the fact that the law acknowledges the sinfulness of man, and therefore there are two key principles in the Old Testament law. Uh, and these kind of underlie the entirety of the law. Uh, number one, you have to have two to three witnesses in any capital crime. Must have two to three eyewitnesses. Which means, by the way, they didn't impose capital punishment very often. Because what kind of fool is going to commit a capital crime with two people watching him? It's going to be really hard. So when you look at, and you'll hear this from time to time, oh, in the Bible they were killing people for all kinds of things. An insolent son, he was supposed to be killed. And so, you know, the Bible condones capital punishment, all kinds of situations that our modern society would never do. Our modern society imposes capital punishment far more than an ancient Israel society actually did. Because the requirement was you have to have two or three eyewitnesses. Remember that story in John uh, 9, a side note here, where um, 8, John 7, uh, John 7, 53, they, they bring a woman to Jesus caught in adultery. Well, Jesus, what are you going to do with her? Jesus then says, you know, he draws in the sand. By the way, the story might not actually be original to the Bible. Um, but no, 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 that's, it's fun to deal with it. Uh, and, and Jesus says, uh, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Number one, Jesus was not an eyewitness. Therefore, he couldn't make judgment. He couldn't do anything. And by the way, the two eyewitnesses are required to cast the, first, the two first stones. They throw stones first. In other words, if you're lying, you're probably not going to throw the stone. So you're not going to say, he did this, because you know I'm going to have to throw a stone. And if I'm killing somebody that I know actually didn't do the crime, I'm going to really feel bad about this. I'm not going to do it. Uh, so, hey, Jesus wasn't qualified to cast judgment in the situation. Right? He wasn't a leader in Israel who had judicial authority, and he wasn't an eyewitness. All right. Secondly, the law says that if you catch a woman in adultery, both the man and the woman should be stoned. And they left the man. They knew, perhaps, hypothetically we're suggesting here, that maybe Jesus might have sympathy for the woman, but he probably wouldn't for the man. So let's bring the woman to him and see what he does. And the answer is, uh, you guys violated the law by bringing only the woman. So I think that's what he's getting at with, with uh, ye who without sin cast the first. Second thing is, it's called lex talionis. It's the law of retaliation. This is basically the essence of the law. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The punishment fits the crime. Uh, and and this, is, this is the biblical ethic overall. All right? And that is your, the punishment fits the crime. So, so those are the two things that go behind. All right, Matthew chapter 5. Okay, one of the questions that we have and that we need to see if we can answer somehow, and let's try to answer it. We've got to go back to the law some more, by the way. But is... How does the law apply today? Do I read the Old Testament law 
And if I do read it, what do I do with it? So Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, and so teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of, of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So here's one of those questions. Just to give you a little bit of a background, and this might go past you, or it might lead to conversations that we probably can't get into fully tonight. But some of us come from Protestant traditions that teaches that the Old Testament doesn't apply. It's it's a tradition that we actually come from. Uh, The idea of that tradition basically is the Old Testament was for Israel, and the New Testament is for the church. And that when God brings Israel back, the Old Testament will be for them. I think that's a very skewed interpretation. I think it's highly problematic. And of course, but it basically makes a big line between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's kind of like Old Testament, not relevant. New Testament is relevant. We've gotten away from that for, for most of us. And we don't attend churches of that nature. And I don't think Cornerstone would, would be one of, those, one of those types of churches. But because of that, some of us were raised with these traditions that this just doesn't matter. We don't need to read the Old Testament. It doesn't really matter what it says. So when you read the particular laws, they don't, they don't matter. One of the ways I'd, ask, I'd, I'd answer that question, well, one of the ways is I'd just cite this passage here. Hello, McFly, anybody home? You know, uh, whoever knows one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others should be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. But the other way I'd say it is this. Do the Ten Commandments apply? Their rebuttal to that, those who say the Old Testament, the Old Testament laws don't apply, the rebuttal of that is, well, if the New Testament says it applies, it applies. But you will not find all of the Ten Commandments restated in the New Testament. They're not all stated there. But we all affirm the Ten Commandments apply. Of course they do. So the reality is, okay, we're obviously working with, with a worldview that uh, I think is problematic. All right. Um, now, what do we mean by then? Christ fulfills the law. Sometimes here's what we do. Let's see if I have this on your notes. I don't. Good. But, but sometimes what we've done is we've said, okay, well, there's three types of laws. You guys ever heard this? There's the moral law, and that applies. Okay. There's the civil law, and that applied to ancient Israel. And those laws don't apply. The civil laws are the laws that, that, that orchestrate how Israeli society in the Old Testament was supposed to work. The Jewish society in the Old Testament. All right. And then there's the sacrificial laws. And those were fulfilled by Jesus. The problem is, is it doesn't work that way. Because thou shalt not murder. Sounds like a civil law to me, doesn't it? Sounds like a moral law to me, doesn't it? So, if it's a civil law, it doesn't apply to us. Because it only applies to Israel. In the Old Testament. If it's a moral law... Guess what? You can't do that. You just can't splice the laws up and say, that one's civil, that one's ceremonial, you know, it's sacrificial, and that one's moral. It doesn't work that way. So it uh, becomes a problem. All right, so what do we mean by Christ fulfilled the law? All right, number one, uh, Christ fulfilled the moral requirements of the law. Wow. I don't know how to answer that one. I mean, it's my familiarity with Catholicism. Uh, and, and the question is, what, is the Catholic view the same as the Protestant? In line of the Protestant view that said those three things, no, I don't believe so. But I'm not a... 
No, I think they'd have a healthier perspective of it from, from a theological perspective than, than what the Protestants have tried to do with it. And, oh, I don't, only this one applies, only that one applies. I, I don't think they would even try to go that. And I think they'd say, I think they probably seem, I'm assuming, I, I really don't know, more of, of what I'm saying here, that, that it was fulfilled in Christ. Derry? Correct. I'm answering the question, though, in light of what is the theological circles of, within Catholicism, what do they say? And I think that's really where the question has to be answered. Even though, in all reality, in the practical world, it, never, it was just never an issue. So, but I'm not familiar enough with it to really give a, a qualified answer, I think. Yeah, that might be your remembrance, but I didn't grow up Catholic, so I can't answer that way. So, Here we go, let's move on. First off, notice the statement, uh, Christ fulfilled the moral requirements of the law. I did not say that Christ fulfilled the moral law. In other words, I'm not splicing up moral law, civil law, sacrificial law. No, no. Christ fulfilled the law. That's the best way to say it. Is he, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And, and Matthew 5, 17. And don't say, oh, he came to fulfill the sacrificial law. No, he came to fulfill the law. Jesus didn't splice the law up as this part, this part, this part. Matthew 5. He came to fulfill it all. all right. Morally, of course, uh, you know, Romans 8, we won't go there, but uh, he fulfills it from that moral standpoint of the moral ethical requirements of the law. I mean, it's, it's the moral ethical requirements of all facets of the law are fulfilled in Jesus. Let me go back a step. And I said this a couple weeks ago in the sermon that I, that, that I spoke here, and that was this, that... Jesus did for Israel what Israel couldn't do for itself. Or Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. It was Jesus fulfilled the role of Israel. And Israel was supposed to fulfill the law. And as a result of that, God, the, the nations will go, wow, look how great their God is. And the nations will be blessed. Jesus fulfills the law and then says what? Now you go out and tell the nations about it. The law is fulfilled in Christ. It is not abolished. It is fulfilled in Christ. Now, the question then becomes, well, what does that mean for us in terms of how this, how this plays out? But it is fulfilled in Christ. All right. Does not mean that they're done away with. Obviously, the Ten Commandments are, 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 are still there. Uh, and number three, through the Spirit, we obey the law. All right. And I touched on this actually in my sermon last week, if you were here, and if you weren't. But no, I just can't. And that was that when you look at Matthew 5, and Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. And then he goes on to say, in fact... Your righteousness needs to surpass the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, when it comes to following the law, that's pretty tough to do. Because they were really good at it, by the way. Oh, no, Rob, they just did it you know, externally. Look, they did it. The law says don't murder. They didn't murder. The law says on the Sabbath day, they did. And they made sure that you do, too. The law says, right, don't have idols. They didn't. So they did it. But then you look at the next verse. You heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty, has already committed murder in his heart. And you go, huh? So what Jesus does is he intensifies the law. And he says it's no longer good enough to follow the law externally. Now you have to follow it internally. You have to be transformed on the inside. So in other words, I would not only say that we have to follow the law, we have to follow the law in the fullest sense of what Jesus said, i.e. by being transformed in our hearts. No longer is it okay to just simply not commit adultery. Now we can't lust either. 
No longer is it okay to love your neighbor. Now we have to love, our, we have to love everybody. So this becomes the ethic. And the answer becomes, and through the Spirit, we obey the law. And, if, and, and you know, Exodus 36, 25 through 27, if you want to write. If you weren't here for the sermon that last weekend, uh, that'd be the, one of the verses to go to. Uh, and Jeremiah 31, I think we might go to here in a few minutes. Are we, are we good? Questions, comments, no remarks? We're, moving, we're, we're okay? This is a tough question, so and let's see if we can answer Here we go. Letter E. We must understand that the purpose of, uh, the Old Testament purpose of Israel and how, how the New Testament people of God fulfill that role, i.e., the law was bound up with redemption, and it was redeeming, buying back, restoring God's creation. Thus, we must ask, what is this redemptive historical what, what's the current... Uh, okay, so I got, I, got, I got theological on you here. Sorry about that. What's this current redemptive historical uh, context? In other words, in the Old Testament... Con- Here's what I mean by that. In the Old Testament context, redemption hadn't come in Jesus yet. And don't say animals' sacrifices worked, because Hebrews says it doesn't. The book of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sins. Therefore, the blood of animals did not bring redemption. That doesn't mean that they're not saved. It just means the redemption hadn't come. The purpose of the law was to bring redemption to God's creation, which means redemption means to buy back. God wants to restore his creation. In Christ, redemption has come. And therefore, the law is fulfilled. Now, what does that mean? Now, we have to be the people of God to just simply go live it out. And as we live it out, what do we do? We bear witness to God, to the nation. That makes sense a little bit? Now, the question still becomes, okay, but what about that law? What about that law? What about that law? How do I live that out? Okay, so let's see if we can answer that question. Does that help you a little bit? Yes, please. Okay, yeah, good. Uh, so, the question was, does that mean that their sins weren't forgiven? And the answer is no. Their sins were forgiven. Uh, Romans 3, I, I want to say it's verse 21 that we want to look at, but uh, Paul says that, that God had a, had a forbearance on them. How's that? Uh, New American Standard actually uses the word forbearance, I do believe. Uh, Romans 3, there it is, 25. That in his blood, uh, the middle of verse 25, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. What a forbearance is, if you had a student loan, you know what a forbearance is. What a forbearance is, you still owe me, but I'm going to postpone the date that it's due. That's a forbearance. So you still owe the debt, but I'm going to give you six months grace. So when Abraham sacrificed an animal, when the Israelites sacrificed animals, God says, okay, guess what? I won't count your sin against you, but payment's still going to be due someday. So in that sense, they can be forgiven, but there's still a payment that's required. Skipping ahead to something in the future, by the way. This is why I believe Satan was kicked out of heaven at the cross. In the Old Testament, Satan is permitted in heaven. We see him a couple times in heaven. And what is he doing? Well, the New Testament says he's the accuser of the brothers. He accuses them before our God day and night. Revelation 12. And we see that in the book of Job. Satan is accusing God. You shouldn't do that to Job. If it wasn't for this, he, you know, he would do all these things. Again. Satan's accusing. Why can Satan accuse prior to the cross? Because there's not been a payment for their sins. You can't let Abraham in. You can't let Sarah in. You can't let Ruth in. You can't let David in. 
The wages of sin is death. We need a punishment. And you know that the blood of that bull is not good enough. Pay up, pay up, pay up. Once pay up happens, Satan's out. He has no more grounds of accusation. His only ground of accusation was there hasn't been a payment. And that's why I think in the New Testament, you always find Satan out of heaven. He's never in heaven. The only time you find Satan in heaven is Revelation 12 that describes his being kicked out. And I say Revelation 12 is clearly past tense. Luke, 9, uh, Luke 10 says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. The law has been fulfilled. And therefore, Satan has no more grounds of an accusation. So, make sense? Great, here we go. We better pick it up a little bit. Um, okay, so I can, I can run through points two, three, four, five very briefly. In the New Testament, the people of God are no longer tied to an ethnic group, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, and nor are we tied to the land. Go ye therefore to all nations. And note the early church, by the way, was selling their land. Because the early church knew the land doesn't matter. We have to go out to the nations now. Number three, Acts 10 and 11, the food laws used to mark Gentiles as unclean. Remember, the purpose of the law was to do what? To separate Israel from the nations. Israel's clean, nations unclean. How do you know Israel's clean? We follow the laws. How do you know the nations, nations are unclean? They don't. One of the most distinctive laws, we have a couple. One, circumcision, but some of the nations practice circumcision, very few. Circumcision would be one, but the food laws would be the other. The clear, all right, the Sabbath is the third, by the way, right? The Israelites practiced the Sabbath, the nations didn't. The food laws was the distinguishing mark of an Israelite. That meant, because you eat unclean food, you're unclean. Acts 10, Peter has a vision. Get up, kill, and eat. No, I can't, I can't eat anything that God has said unclean. Acts chapter 11, Peter interprets the vision when he speaks before the Gentile people, and he says, God has told me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. The vision didn't say that. The vision said, that food is clean. It never said anything about people. It says, eat that food, it's okay. And Peter says, God has told me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So the food marks the Gentiles as unclean. But no longer is that an issue now, right? Uh, why? Because now the church has to go into the nations. So in that sense, I think I would say the food laws don't apply. Why? Because they're fulfilled in Christ. Mark 7, Jesus declares all food clean. That doesn't mean, by the way, you may have heard this before, that it, you, you, you can't follow the food laws. It just means you don't have to. And you could argue, you know, it's healthy to follow, and it is. It's a healthier diet. So if you want to follow the food laws, you can. I don't. I personally don't believe that you have to. There's a few denominations or, or sects like the Seventh Day Adventists, and even then, there's some variations. Hebrews 10: the sacrificial laws are fulfilled in Christ. Right? Uh, that's part of the passage that I quoted: that the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sins. Hebrews is a great book, by the way. You, you know, you want to know the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament? Read Hebrews, because that's what the book's all about. It's the Old Testament ways are fulfilled in Jesus, so why would you go back to Old Testament ways? It's, it's Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back to Judaism. He's like, why would you do that? That's silly. Everything's been superior in Christ. So it's, it's a wonderful book on that. All right, Leviticus 19. This is, I think, the bottom line. Here we go. And then I want to parse out one more aspect of the law, and then we'll move on to the Psalms. Leviticus 19. All right. If you want to know the law, this is it. Uh, uh, even though I mentioned earlier, Leviticus is actually for the Levites. It's for the priests. 
But this one really does play out for everyone else as well. Leviticus 19 is the crux of the matter. Uh, We call it the holiness code. It says, be holy because I'm holy, right? Verse 2. You shall be holy because I'm holy. And if someone says the law doesn't apply, (laughs) my first response, you know, the easy way is do the Ten Commandments apply? And almost everybody says, yeah. That takes, okay, great. The Ten Commandments, by the way, is the law. So that's it. Okay. Um, The second response will be, Quote Matthew 5, 17. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Then Jesus goes on and says, you have to do better than the scribes and the Pharisees. Right? Then he goes on to say, you heard it was said you shouldn't murder, but I say don't hate. You heard it was said don't commit adultery, but I say don't even lust. The last verse of Matthew 5, 48 or 49, whatever the last verse is, is be perfect because your Father in heaven is perfect which is quoting Leviticus 19, verse 2. Be holy, because I'm holy. So Jesus closes the ethic. I mean, that's the law. Right? Matthew 5 is Jesus' law. Not 6 and 7, but 5. And that ends with Leviticus 19. Be holy, because I'm holy. So the law applies in full force. Sure, food laws, absolutely all foods are now clean. Fulfilled in Christ. Not abolished, fulfilled in Christ. That makes sense? They marked people as a separate na- as separate from the nations until they were fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, there's no need to mark the people as the church as separate from the nations now. We are made of people from the nations. Right. Um, sacrificial laws, fulfilled in Christ. Not abolished, fulfilled. No more need. Why? Because Christ was sacrificed once and for all. That, that bull didn't work, so you had to sacrifice another bull the next day. It was only temporary. God says, oh, well, I'll count it for you, but I really want a good payment. Christ, sufficient. No more sacrifices. Right. Um, but the rest of the law, especially the moral aspects of the law, it, it, it comes down to Leviticus 19, uh, um, and it's, be holy because I'm holy. And, and this stipulates all the aspects. And I'm, I'm sorry, but we don't have time to go through the details of, of Leviticus 19 tonight. But all the aspects of uh, the holiness code or of what it means to be holy, are played out here. And, and it's basically be holy in every aspect of, every, of your life. Be holy in your social relations, in your business relations, in your personal relations. Um, be holy. And of course, that applies today. And how do we know it applies today? Uh, because Peter quotes it. Jesus quotes it, but Peter also quotes it. Be holy because I'm holy. First uh, Peter 2. 1 Peter 1, 2. We're not going to bicker and argue about who killed who. 1 Peter 1, verse 15. But like the one who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter quotes Leviticus 19 and says, um, still applies. That's what we're supposed to look like. Now, let me go one more step here. And it's capital F on your outline. And it's just fancy words that don't mean a whole lot. Leveling it out. Uh, it's called case law versus apodictic law. Okay, here you go. The Ten Commandments is the law. How's that? That's it. You know, have you heard, you know, how many laws are there? Oh, there's 633 laws. No, there's not. There's ten. There are ten laws. Period. That's the law. Everything else in the Old Testament, what we call the law, are called case laws. And case law is... How does this law apply in that situation? 
You see, it says, thou shalt not murder. Well, if two guys are fighting, and they accidentally hit somebody else, and that guy dies, uh, am I guilty? Did I murder? Or... That's called a case law. A case law is the application of the Ten Command- of the law, thou shalt not murder. It's not a new law. It's just an application of the, of the Ten. Does that make sense? So, apodictic laws are the Ten Commandments. They're, they are, thou shalt not. They express the general principles. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Case laws are, if this happens, then do that. Or when that happens, then do this. Or whoever does this, then do... And it's just an application of the laws. There's only ten laws. It's actually very simple. The case laws, and all these laws, by the way, they're actually just reflecting the ethic of, of, uh, of the holiness code. Love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, the holiness code is love God and love your neighbor. Which, that's the New Testament, isn't it? So what that means is, there's an example, I think, on your outline, and it's like, um, there's, uh, there's a case law that says you have to put a parapet around your roof, you know, a small fence. So if your neighbors and stuff are up, up on your roof, they don't accidentally fall off. Oh, well, that has no application today. Well, commonly we say, yeah, if you have a pool, put a fence around it. So your neighbor's kid doesn't wander in your pool. That's an application of, because what's the point? The point is love your neighbor. So don't make your property such that it's harmful to them. If they walk on it. Oh, we all know that there's broken glass in that part of the lawn, so we don't walk there. Bummer for you. No, don't have broken glass on your lawn. Pick it up. Fix it. In case the neighborhood kid rolls up, goes up there, or their dog comes up there. That's, that's the application of the law. Make sense? Very well. Hey, let's take a three-minute stretch. Was clear to you guys. Was that? Yes, that helped. Did we help you with your questions about the law and does it apply and all that good stuff? The answer is basically yes, especially the holiness code. That's what's supposed to characterize the people of God, though certain aspects of the law were only temporary provisions like the sacrificial laws and the food laws. They ran in fulfillment. All right. Uh, um, now, poetry. Poetry is really important, by the way. Oh, it's like poetry we find in the book of Psalms. Uh, how about 40% of the Old Testament is poetic? 40%. Because most of the prophets also spoke in poetic form. Now, and there's some poetry in the New Testament. You know, Mary's song, Zechariah's song, Simeon's song, some of the creeds. You'll find some poetry in the New Testament also. But it's very popular in the Old Testament. If you have a... My Bible likes to put, you know, if it doesn't like in block... That, that's block script. You see, I'm in the book of James. All right. That's block script. So that's, that's narrative or that's letter or something like that. All right. You skip to the poetry and you see how it's center justified. Center, you know, so, that, so it doesn't all come to the end. Uh, right. Center justified means that my translators think that that's poetic. Does that make sense? Now, sometimes you can't tell. You just can't. Because some of the prophets, just the way they talk, it's kind of poetic, but I'm not sure if they're just telling a story here. So, it's actually blurry. But it's very, very important to figure it out. All right. Poetry in the Bible does not rhyme. You know, in the Greek or in the Hebrew. Because almost every word in Hebrew rhymes. It's just, they all end the same way. So, it's just, most of them do. Uh, all feminine words, all masculine words end the same way. So, it's too easy to rhyme. So, uh, that's not what's happening. Alright. Uh, the next thing about poetry is uh, that uh, poetry likes to show you rather than tell you. 
Show you means they're giving you images to think about. And you get it. Instead of them telling you. But now you've got to be careful because images are just images. All right, here we go. Number one on your outline, page 11 under capital A. It's compressed language. It says a lot uh, and with few words. And you just sometimes have to slow down. You just can't read the psalm uh, like you're reading the, a gospel story. You've got to slow down with it you just, because that's just the way it works. There's also a lot of ambiguity because it uses fewer words. It's sometimes unclear. Right, I'll go capital B. Imagery or figurative language, a lot of metaphor. God's a shepherd. Read the, at least if you're over 21, read the Song of Songs, and, right, and you see the imagery. A lot of metaphor, a lot of imagery, uh, things like that as well. Let's see. Intended to shock us, to consider new things about God. Uh, shock value number two, the Lord is a shepherd is shocking. Uh, though sometimes a shepherd could be a metaphor for a king. But even that's shocking, because we know about shepherds, and they're usually not high up on the social totem pole. So to use that imagery actually has a shock value to it. But it's something that you can relate to, right, if you're an ancient Israelite, because there's a lot of shepherds out there. Okay. Capital C. The distinguishing, this, this is like, if you learn anything about poetry, this is the point. The distinguishing mark of ultimate poetry is called parallelism. All right, let's go to Psalm 1. This actually isn't the best, best passage to illustrate it with, but I want to illustrate some other things from this passage, so I will use it anyways. Uh, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers. Okay? First off, notice the terseness. Notice how they left words out. In other words, we could add words here. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. How blessed is the man who doesn't stand in the path of sinners. How blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. So how you left that whole clause out? But you get it, don't you? You get it. Okay. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Notice how it left the words out, i.e., sinners will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Okay? Let me continue to Psalm 2 for a second. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together. Against the Lord and against his anointed. This is a perfect illustration of parallelism. In parallelism, the second line repeats the first line. Often, why are the nations in an uproar? See the capital A? That's the translator saying, this is kind of a new line. It's not, it's not, it's not a sentence, not a new sentence, it's just a new line. And the second line repeats the first line. And the people's devising a vain thing. In other words, it's the nations are in an uproar, the peoples are divided. It just it repeats itself. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together. See? The second line repeated the first line. Against the Lord and against his anointed. See? Second, this, this is a very common feature of prophecy and of uh, poetry. Now, they're not totally 
identical. Notice, especially here, the rulers, the kings that take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed one. The second line kind of repeats the first line. So what you want to do with parallelism is take the two lines and put them together, kind of isolate them from everything else, and note that the second line is just repeating the first line, but it usually adds something to it. The second line adds a little bit more, maybe even some more clarity. In other words, it's not actually the nations in an uproar, it's the people. Kind of synonymous though, right? All right it's the kings of the earth, right, uh, i.e. their rulers. Uh, kind of says the same thing. Against the Lord, against his anointed. Oh, it's not just the Lord they're going after, it's the king of Israel they're going after. The nations are standing in opposition to the king of Israel, but in doing so, they're standing in opposition to the Lord. Because the king of Israel is the Lord's anointed one. See how that happens? How that works? You are Israel whom I have chosen. Jake, or, you, know, you are Israel, my beloved. You know, Jacob whom I have chosen. Uh, Jacob and Israel are the same thing. So this is a common feature of parallelism, and you've got to be careful with it. If you understand what's happening, it's just repeating itself. Psalm 1 did it, but sometimes it has like three things. It's the computer program that did it. And by the way, and so what the, the question is, why is it not center justified? Look what the computer program did. It put every verse left justified. And in doing that, you miss out big time. Any Bible that does that is not a great Bible. It might be okay, you know, memorizing verses one at a time, but it's doing a great disservice. You can't tell whether this is narrative or poetry or anything. So, not a good idea. Now, again, the translators have to, uh, have to assume that this is poetry or not. Because the Hebrew texts, there's no verses, there's no breaks, there's no sentences, there's no breaks between words. The Greek text, same thing. They didn't, because a scroll was expensive, and so to save space, everything's smashed together. There's no spaces between words, let alone between verses. No periods, no punctuation marks. So, for us, it helps us a lot now, because if, we're reading, if we knew Hebrew in the ancient time, we could tell what's poetry what's not. But we don't know that, so now it's niceful. Ni- niceful? It's a good word. I got a PhD, I can make up words. Um, so, it's niceful. Cost me a lot of money to be able to make up that word. Uh, anyways, it's nice that they do it for us, because it helps us out. So, alright, make sense? Psalm number one. Let's go back to it now. Okay, let's talk primarily about the book of Psalms now. Uh, the book of Psalms uh, is really one book. It's got 150 books in it. Psalms, uh, the, the order of the Psalms, we're not really sure of them. We kind of have a good feel for why that Psalm and that Psalm are together, but we don't really know why all of them are actually in the actual order that they're in. Definitely not in the order in which they were written. Definitely not in the order of size. Psalm 119 obviously would not be located where it is, right? It's the longest uh, book in any, or chapter in any, any book of the Bible. So, we're not, but we do know this. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are very well positioned. The Psalms are songs, aren't they? They're songs that the ancient Israelites sang. Right? And they sang them in worship. And therefore, the Psalms are associated with the temple. Right? Not, now, remember, the temple is not where you go to worship, but... Worship and sacrifices, they don't make a distinction there greatly. So worship in the temple kind of do go together very, very well. Even though the people didn't go there to sing the book of Psalms and have church. That's not what they do. 
um, and the synagogues hadn't been, hadn't been invented yet. All right. But, so what Psalm number one is doing is this, is it's kind of, uh, some scholars will say, it's the gatekeeper psalm. It's the introduction of the book of Psalms, and it's letting you know the wicked are not permitted here. The righteous can come in, but the wicked cannot. The, the wicked cannot stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Um, now, also Psalm number uh, verse 1, it kind of has parallelism, but there's three lines. How blessed is the one who doesn't walk, the one who doesn't stand, and the one who doesn't sit. And you see there's actually a, uh, there's actually a, a movement, isn't there? It's, you don't even walk with the wicked, let alone stop and stand with them, and you certainly don't sit with them. So, uh, there's parallelism, but it, it goes in another level as well. Alright, so this is your gatekeeper psalm. Psalm number two is the, it's a coronation hymn. It's, it's the psalm that was sung when the king of Israel was crowned as king. So, that does place this psalm at the time of David. Or afterwards, right? Because that's that's when the kingship started, um, and it's the coronation psalm, right? And it's, of course, by the way, it's actually very prophetic because you'll see about you'll see Christ in there. Uh, verse nine of Psalm two: "You'll break them with a rod of iron," is applied to Jesus in, in Revelation twelve, and also in the book of Hebrews. All right, in the book of Hebrews, "Thou art my son." Let's see, uh, verse seven is of course said of Jesus at the baptism of Jesus. Don't believe Jesus was ever made king until later on. Uh, sorry, God quoted the coronation hymn for all kings of Israel at his baptism. Jesus is crowned king at the baptism. The psalm, of course, is uh, has has it's kind of has. There's twelve verses in our in our English Bibles, and what it actually breaks up into verses one, two, three, then verses four, five, and six, seven, eight, and nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and very briefly as we finish up here. Let me, let me cite this for you here. Look at my Bible for a second. Uh, Psalms 1, 2, and 3 are, the nations are rebelling against God. Why? And of course, they're doing so by rebelling against the king of Israel. So verses 4, 5, and 6 then is God responding. And here's what it is. The Lord scoffs at them. He laughs at them. What are you doing? Verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion. Verse 7 now, God speaks to the king. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son that I have begotten thee. I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth. Verses 10 through 12 now is what God now says to the nations who are rebelling. Nations are rebelling. God like laughs at them. He turns to his king and says, okay, I've made you king. And I'm going to give you the nations as your inheritance. Now, what does he say to the nations? Uh, Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth, you know, the ones who are scoffing at God. Take warning. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. God's going to set up his king, and judgment's basically going to come by what you do to him. Worship the king. Kiss the Son, I think the NIV says, right? says, kiss the sun. I love that. Lest he become angry and you perish in the way. So, this then serves as your introduction to the whole book of Psalms. Uh, now, the Psalms, of course, take on many forms. Uh, uh, there's laments, 
which are which are life's not going well and we're grieving and crying. There's hymns, which like life's going really well and we're really happy about it. Thanksgiving, which means God's delivered us from some situation. Wisdom, which means, hey, God gave us the wisdom to do the right thing in this situation. Uh, there's kingship psalms, there's remembrance psalms, which the remembrance psalms, by the way, are really good. If you read that psalm, you get the history of Israel. Remember what God did for us? All right, uh, Psalm 78, the remembrance psalm. Uh, and then there's psalms of confidence. We have confidence in God because uh, he's Lord. Now, one or two more things very briefly here. Some of the psalms are called acrostics. An acrostic is where, uh, like, the first, letter, the first word starts with A, then the next verse, the first word starts with B, and then the next verse, the first word starts with C. That's an acrostic. It's going through the alphabet. An acronym, right? Psalm 119, some of you may know this, is an acrostic. It has 176 verses because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And what it does, and you see what my Bible does here. Am I up? No. What my Bible does is it tells you, see the word, the letter Aleph? That's the Hebrew letter Aleph. And it tells you Aleph. The first eight verses of Psalm 119 all begin with the Hebrew letter Aleph, which is kind of the letter A, but not quite. A is a vowel, and Aleph is a consonant. All right. The next eight verses, verse 9, then begins with the letter Beit, which is the Hebrew letter B. Then the next eight verses begin with Gimel, which is kind of like a G in English. And it goes through the entire Hebrew alphabet in eight-letter sequences. Now, by the way, this is... This is impossible. Not, uh, one reason why it's impossible is, well, I, I dare you to start eight verses with the letter Z or Q. Really hard to do, isn't it? But the entire psalm also has every verse deals directly or indirectly with the scriptures or the word of God. So now you have to start with, with a certain letter and they all have to be on the same theme. It's very difficult. And they all have a certain, uh, uh, not rhyme as in they, they sound like, but rhythm. How's that? To it. it's, it's, an, it's a work, of, it's unbelievable. Look at the book of Lamentations, by the way, when you get a chance. Chapter 1 has 22 verses. Chapter 2 has 22 verses. Chapter 3 has 22 verses. Chapter 4 has 66 verses. They're acrostics. They all, and what it is, is every verse, the new verse begins with the next letter. And it's really easy to do the versifications and lamentations because verse 1, oh, there's a B. No, that's verse 2. There's a C. There's, the, there's verse 3. So they also are, are using this also. All right, very well. Yep. Asaph. Asaph. Only a few. We don't know. We have no idea. Moses wrote one. Asaph wrote a number of them. David wrote a whole bunch of them. And then there's like the sons of uh, Korah wrote some. And some of these people, we have no idea who they are. So, all right, let me, hey, let me, I'm, I'm late. So let me close in prayer, and if you have some more questions, I think Mark and I have a conversation to finish. Uh, also. All right, so Lord, we are grateful for your word, and um, sometimes we talk about the Old Testament, and it's just like boring, and it's like the law, and who really cares? Um, because some of us have just tragically been taught that it has no relevance to us, um, and yet it's rich, and it's beautiful because it speaks of Christ, uh, and it also speaks of the church. And it speaks very directly to us and what we're supposed to look like. Somehow, separate from the nations. Yet we have a more difficult task because we're called to go out to the nations. So it's easy to be holy when you're separate from the nations. But it's very difficult, Lord, to be holy when we're in the midst of the nations. It's tempting to to look just like the nations. 
to do what the nations do so that we can be a witness to them. Sometimes we just justify our, our, our actions with, with that. And, and it's a difficult line for us to draw, so make it clear to us. Uh, give us a love and a richness for, for the depth and the richness of the word and be glorified in our lives as we go out to be your servants now. We thank you for all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.